turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Life can be crazy. Do you agree with that? Say amen. amen. Life can be crazy. You can start a new job and not know, have a clue what's going to happen next. You can move to a new location that you have all figured out. You don't know what in the world is going to happen or what to expect. You could end up with the weirdest neighbors or you end up next door to Pastor Dave or something. You just never know. Get into a new relationship, and you're just like, man, is this the one? I don't know. The, the, the life is filled with uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to tell you guys this. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You have no idea. And so life, we often go through it like this, and that's why the Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can't see it, but I've got to trust in the one that can see it. But when it comes to life, I know how it's going to end. I know how it's going to end. The book of Revelation is not a popular book to preach. It's a great Bible study. It's great to get into a room, sit around with pens and markers and go verse by verse because it's so intense. I start off in Revelation 4. You don't have to turn there. I, I've preached Revelation chapter 4. Out of all the passages in the Bible, that's probably the one that I preach the most. I love the description of God. I love this, the elders, the saints ra- around the throne of God. I, I love how they take off their crowns and they cast them before God. I love, I mean, it's just so cool of the promise. But we switch from an image of God in Revelation 4 to an image of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5. It starts off with God, of course. We see God in chapter 4 high and lifted up. He is the focal point. He is the center. He is the one that is the center of heaven. And that rolls right into chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within, on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now the book has two meanings. In the Greek, it was more like a scroll. In our terminology, it's just... A, a, a thing holding knowledge. It was symbolic, but it was important. It was sealed with seven seals. Back then, the number of seven was the number of completion. The fact that it had the seven seals, often in history, that was a sign of a deed. It was also the sign of a will. And so people have speculated, which one of those is? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to pull a brother Wally Williams, the secret things belong into the Lord. There are just certain things that we just don't know. But I do know that it is the conclusion of the story. I know it talks about the end of time. I know it talks about the will of God. I know that it talks about the closing of humanity. So whether it's the will of what God intends or it's the deed of what God holds, I don't know. The other thought is with the deed, we're going to point out as we go through because there is some strong evidence of this. But the next part caught my attention, and so therefore I'm going to throw it out to you, and I'm going to catch your attention with this. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, listen to this, who is worthy to open the book and to lose the seals thereof? Let's pray. Father, I need you, because I know that we've gathered here today some people that are searching, and some people that are hungry, and some people that are broken, and some people that are just confused. Lord, I know that the Word of God has all the answers. Lord, two, three times this week, I asked you to not let me have to preach this. But Lord, I know without a doubt that you've pulled us together as your people to study Revelation chapter 5. 
So I pray, Lord, that you'll give us all understanding, that you'll give me clarity. And Lord, that you'll prepare our hearts to understanding that you are worthy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Why ask the question when you already know the answer? (laughs) Okay, here's God. There's Jesus. And a strong angel steps up and says, hey, Who's worthy? Who's worthy? Who's worthy? And I'm thinking, uh, Jesus? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, if you study, there's, there's a lot of things. God wrote the Bible for us to understand, okay? A, a lot of times people put it up. Everything, the symbolism, even the fact that you're saved today and you're a child of God. You try to complicate salvation. The thing is that God made us a child. He loves you as a child. He'd do anything for you as a child, including stepping out of heaven Taking on sin and dying on the cross. He loves you as his children. So everything that we see in the Bible, he tries to get us to understand. So in this, to ask a question is to prompt our mind to paint this portrait or the scene to us today for us to get the point of what he's trying to get across. I walk into my living room and Morgan is sitting on the couch and she's got my laptop on her lap and she's sitting there. She's going, and I'm like... Morgan, what's the matter? And she goes, Dad, I can't figure this out. And I'm walking. I said, what are you trying to do? She said, I'm trying to find a gift for mom for Christmas. And it was something that she could not find. And it's not made anymore. And she's got this in her mind. She wanted to do it. So I walked over there and I sat right down next to her. And I looked at her and I said, Morgan, whose computer is that? And she looks at me and she goes, well, Daddy, it's yours. And I said, Morgan, does Daddy know how to use that computer? And she said, well, Yeah, Dad, you know how. And I looked at her again and I said, does Daddy love you? And she says, well, Dad, you know, of course, you know, and it's just, I I knew the answer to all those. She knew the answer to all those. But the thing that I was doing, I was trying to get her to understand the situation. I was calling to her mind. So we have a passage right here that God is calling to our minds something that's important. Yes, they knew the answer. Yes, this is something that is obvious. But the question is asked. Verse 3 is important. Because after the question, no one responds. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth. Guys, you you know why we jumped under the earth? Because there is another group of people, another man, the ruler of darkness, that thought he was worthy was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. The generic term for no man was no creature, no man, no woman, or no thing. All included, from heaven to hell. The saints that we love and adore were there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Gideon, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But none of them were worthy. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Allah, not a pope. No one. Actually, heaven stayed silent on purpose to declare that there is none of us. There is no religious leader. There is no God in the past that thought themselves to be a God that ever could rise up to stand in the presence of the great I am and be worthy enough to take the scroll. The screen is played out in front of us as we watch this unfold. There is no one worthy. Silence comes over heaven. There is no praise. There is no worship. It means that the enemy has prevailed. For just a moment in time, 
it sinks down in their minds of what? Nobody? This is crazy. But the whole passage is about who won. The whole passage is, is emphasizing the same way of, you take David Phelps, um, Michael Phelps, during the Olympics. David Phelps is a Christian singer. Michael Phelps swims in water. There's a difference. <laughs> and uh, both very talented. But uh, you take Michael Phelps, when he won and he got out of the water and everybody's going crazy. But then they wait and they have a ceremony. Everybody knows the winner. Everybody knows that he has the gold. Everybody knows he's going to get the gold. And they have those three tears pulled out. And they announce it as if nobody knows, but everybody already knows. And my, Michael Phelps walks out there and he walks to the top and they lay gold medal after gold medal, recognizing, pausing in time to say, hey, he is worthy to wear the gold. Put your attention on him. But in verse 4, it says, And John said, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. The words wept much means to wail aloud, to weep or to sob. There's a lot of descriptions of crying in the Bible, but none to the level of this. To wail is like a, a mom that has lost a child or a dad that has lost a spouse or somebody that has lost something dear to them. It is to weep uncontrollably because the circumstances is beyond your control. This is a cry of tragedy or a cry of utter loss. It means that there was no victory. I want you to stop and think for a minute. Where would you be if you knew everything right now that you know about hell, Satan, and eternity? But you were lost and could do nothing about it. You know, for us, you've had those dreams. You, you wake up and you're just hearts beating about what it would be like to stand before God or be cast into hell and all this. You can imagine in this passage, John is just sitting there going, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Somebody's got to stand. Somebody has got to take this. And just in that moment, he felt that. Right before we did the Greater Things Project, Jen and I got a letter from the government. Let me just tell you, if you ever get that, it's never a good letter. We bought a house in 2014. We filed our taxes. Filed our taxes in 2015. Come to find out, there was a glitch of something that I did not do right with being moved. And I got a big, fat, ugly bill of back taxes. And I tell you, that is not a happy situation. If any of you guys have ever been there before, I mean, if I'm going to spend a lot of money on something, I, if a couch, at least I can go in and sit on the couch. If I have to buy tires, I can see it. Taxes, it's like, you know, and I know it goes to roads and all that stuff. But I mean, for me, I just like, honey, we do not have the money to pay that debt. We don't have it. Well, here it is. A few weeks later, they gave us 90 days. We're trying to get the money together and pull things together. And Jen called me up one day and she said, babe, you're not going to believe this. They sent us basically an apology letter saying it was a mistake and we don't owe the money. All right. So I am like, I, I went so many weeks, bearing, you know, getting up to this. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to do it now. But in that moment, I did a happy dance that was pretty sweet. You know, I, I just was like, woo, I'm a, I said, babe, read it again. Read it again, baby. We took down the family photo of our kids and hung that up in our house now. 
You, you know, it's something about that God calls the attention and said, you were in debt and it was bad and you couldn't handle it. And all of a sudden says, hey, but it's all fixed and it's going to get better. Ought to have a reaction in our hearts and minds to change our hearts and minds. With a loud voice it was called, who is worthy? John is weeping, and one of the elders saith unto me. Now the elders represent the saved. So you can imagine if one of us or a Christian was there, and they saw John, and they were like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, and he was wailing, my, I don't know what that would be. But he's just crying and weeping before God. And he went up and he said, hey. So imagine one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now remember, the elders are the ones that fell down and worshipped before. John is standing there observing and he says, don't weak, don't cry, don't be broken. It is okay. This description is important because God describes his son as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, look, take notice. The lion is someone that conquers. He's the king of the jungle. He's a symbol of kings. He's a symbol of royalty. He's a symbol of strength. And they point to him. They all stood in that moment before him as king. The king has prevailed. The lion has prevailed. See, the word prevailed means to conquer, to overcome, It means to have and get the victory. Why do we have this rhetorical question? I think it will help us. Because as we see the scene unfolding, it is a reminder to us as how it is going to end. I know how it's going to end. So let me give you the three points this morning. Number one, it's going to end with Satan's defeat. It's going to end with Satan's defeat. Now I'm going to get into this and I promise you, you're just going to have to buckle up and hang on because I'm going to take you all the way through the entire Bible. But please help me with this because you've got to get the picture. See, in verse 5 when he said the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, the word prevail has to be there only if you prevailed over something. You can't have victory unless you overcome something. You can't overcome something unless there was opposition to overcome. So this question is asked, Of the worthiness of God. Because the worthiness of God was called into question before this happened. Actually it happened in the very spot that we're standing in right now. In the throne room of heaven. You guys, oftentimes we think of Satan as a a little red guy with a tail and a pitchfork. And you know, fangs and you know, that's how we do it. But I'm going to show you in the Bible we don't find Satan described as that whatsoever. He's not a scary demon. So I'm going to read these verses, and I want you guys, guys, let me just run you through the Bible to bring you back to the throne room to understand, okay? So they've gone through all this journey, and the, the conclusion, the grand ceremony is where we're at. Ezekiel 28, 14, talking about Satan. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou hast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in the ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Now the cherub was the closest thing to God, the angelic beings. 
he was described as the anointed cherub. Anointed, meaning to have the hand of God or position placed on him. The same way as when they called out David to be king, they anointed him to be the king. He was the anointed cherub to stand in that presence. He was maybe the closest one or the highest official, or we don't know the details of that, but I can tell you he was high-ranking. But this got to him. Ezekiel 28, 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of the bright, thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they might behold thee. Satan comes back and says, Challenge accepted. I will, I will take you down. I will go to your kings. I will go to your people. I will go to your nation. I will t- accept that challenge. Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which is weaken the nations? What he did. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will be like the most high. See, for us to sit there and ask the question in the throne room of God, who is worthy? And God says, let me take you back thousands of years when I can take you to where my worthiness was questioned. Satan stands up. I've got followers too. I've got glory too. I've got power too. I've got all of this. I can't imagine what this scene was like. But God does not destroy him. God cast him out. Ezekiel 28, 16, by the mountain of the merchandise, they have filled the mist of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the mist of the stones of fire. Now, guys, it's no surprise where he ends up. As soon as God creates the earth, here he is at the very beginning. Now, what does he do from the beginning? He questions the authority of God. He questions the worthiness of our God. So he walks up to Adam and Eve. You guys know the story. He walks up to Adam and Eve, and there he goes in the middle of that. Yea, have God really said? Well, see, the thing is, he knows that the moment that you do this, that you will be as gods. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to lift and exalt them up with pride for them to think, oh, I'm missing out on something. So it gets in their mind and their heart to think this. You guys know that they fell into sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Satan is described as a serpent. And it's the same description that we're going to find of Satan at the very end when he's cast into the pit. He convinces Adam and Eve not to listen to God and he followed them and he questioned God. From there on out, he's constantly seeking to destroy. From the wickedness of man where God had to destroy the earth with the flood to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah to the bondage that God's people were placed in in the land of Egypt. Then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he tries to destroy him through Herod and he fails at that. But we see him at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now I'm going to read these verses and I hope this sinks into your heart. Matthew 4, 2. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he afterwards hungered. This is Jesus. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, what is he doing? If you really are who you say you are. That's not a rhetorical question. That's rebellion. He stands in the presence of the Son of God saying, If you who are who you are, say you are, then you do what I tell you to do. Command that these stones be made in the bread. He was questioning God's authority. 
Matthew 4, 8, again the devil maketh him, or taketh him up into exceedingly high mountain to show with him the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he saith unto them, now listen to this. All these things will I give thee. First of all, who in the world does Satan think he is? To walk up to the Son of God and say, I'll make you a deal. But he turns around of the world and the, the, the empire that he has made up and the sin that he has created and the corruption that he has done. He's become the God of this world, little g, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Satan did not get it. It was about to be reversed. See, Satan was going to fall down at the feet of Jesus, not Jesus at the feet of Satan. Satan had set up his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God of this world had blinded the eyes or the minds of them that believe not. Little g, that is Satan. And John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That is Satan. Ephesians 2, 2, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. That is Satan. I take you back to Revelation when the question is asked, who is worthy? Satan does not show up. He does not show his face. He does not enter the throne room. He does not speak up because in the presence of heaven, only the lions stood when they asked the question of who is worthy. And see, all of this is playing up to this historical moment in history to declare that there is no one that can stand in the presence of the great I am. He walks up, he takes the scroll, the deed of the earth and the final plans of man. It was not Satan that had overcome. It was the Lamb of God that had overcome. He opens up the scroll and the rest of Revelation unfolds. We see in Revelation chapter 20 verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Wouldn't it be that great thing to do to do today just to shut up Satan? And set him upon his seal that he should deceive the nations no more. See, let me tell you, Satan right now might be wreaking havoc in your family. And I I tell you, every one of us who go around saying, man, I'm battling with this and my kids are rebellious. And I see Satan working in our nation and I see him working overseas and I see him working through ISIS and I see all this. But the thing you've got to understand is we know how it's going to end. See, all of this working and all this manipulation and everything that he has done from the time of the very beginning in garden to the time he stirred up Herod to kill the baby to the time he came and challenged Jesus on the mount to the time that he stands before God, he's going to realize that only Jesus Christ is worthy. But do we get that? I'm asking us as God's people, do we get that? See, we realize that the question is asked because of Satan's defeat. I know how it ends, but I want to make it a little more personal as we get into this. I know how it is. I I know it ends with Satan's defeat, but I also know that it ends with our sins covered. And I know what you're thinking right now, because I thought the same thing. Why are you bringing that up now? Because at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens were covered underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, the blood of Jesus Christ and what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We know that. But let me get real with you guys right now. Here's the truth. Even though we know that in the minds and hearts of most Christians, we battle with ourselves. You battle with yourselves. You're sitting there thinking, 
I can't get over. I know that God has forgiven. I know that there's people that have bowed right here over and over again. I can't get over a past divorce. I can't get over the fact that I failed my kids. I can't get over the fact that I served time in prison. I can't get over the fact that I lied to my parents. And it beats you up like crazy. And I'll tell you what, there's some things that these are just scars in our lives. The, the, the pain of that, it cannot drag you to hell. There is no debt of your sin that can drag you to hell. There is now no condemnation. It's under the blood. It cannot be brought up to us. But in our minds, we have the scars of our sin that haunt us. And then this crazy thing happens in Revelation. Because they're standing before the lion. But when Jesus steps forward, he is no longer the lion at all. The description totally changes. And I know that we know this already, but the question is, why does it go from the lion to the lamb? Why did God change it when he's asking who is worthy for us to stare upon him? Why are we not just staring in the face of the great I am of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Instead, we come to a lamb. In verse six, and I behold and lo, in the midst of the throne, four beasts. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. That literally means power, which is the ram's horn of any animal that has power. It uses its horns and the eyes as knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. From the lion to the lamb, the lamb stood because the lamb was alive. As it had been slain, meaning in the past tense. But in the past tense of them looking at the lamb. The lamb had visual evidence that the lamb had been slain. Okay. So here we are. Standing in the presence of God. And the only one in the presence of God that bears any resemblance of the past pain, sin, or debt of sin whatsoever is not any of us, but the Lamb of God. See, we are standing there clothed in the righteousness of God. We stand redeemed. We are staring upon the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. We stare upon the sacrifice that took our place. We are reminded that there is no limits to the love of our God. We are reminded that we are no longer sinners, but we are redeemed saints of God. There is not one scar upon one saint, only upon the Lamb. Because there is no past to be reminded of. See, I know how it ends for all you that sit there and struggle in this life, and those that cannot forgive yourselves, and those that cannot get over your trials and pains. And you say, man, when will this torture end See, when he takes the scroll and he opens it up and we read through the rest of Revelation, we come to chapter 21, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall be there any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Do you guys get what God does? He comes down, the Lamb comes down, the Jesus Christ comes down, and he wipes away our tears, which symbolizes the grief that we had. And he says in this moment, he said, hey, the former things are passed away. You know what God does? Is he clears the slates. He starts anew. 
He gives us a fresh mind and a fresh heart. He turns everything around so that we can glory in the presence of God because worthy is the Lamb from here through all eternity at that point. And see, we struggle with this so much. And yet the lion to the Lamb was deliberately illustrated. See, John the Baptist described Jesus when he came as, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And in verse 7, Jesus came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Do you realize that this is the very symbol of redemption? He paid the price. He finished the job. He covered our debts. He reclaims what is rightfully his. Church, I I don't know what tomorrow holds. But I can tell you how it's going to end. I've read the last chapter. I've looked to the end. And I can tell you all this grief and pain and trials and tribulations comes to an end. But let me just close with this. We looked at Satan's defeat. We look at our sins covered. But it ends with the saints rejoicing. See, in that very moment, the mood of heaven makes a dramatic shift. John is no longer weeping. There is no longer distress. There is no longer defeat. And there's definitely no longer fear. There is no longer a question that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord and lords. But notice how the saints respond. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. And when we had taken the book, the four beasts and the four elders fell down before the Lamb. Having every one of them harps and golden vials of full odors. Which are the prayers of the saints. And listen to this. And they sung a new song. You know what God does? The song... And our life is the theme of whatever we sing. You guys relate to music. Everybody drives on the road. You can, you can realize you see a pickup truck, you're going to probably hear country music coming out of it. And a lot of that just relates to where they're at in life, okay? So they have this song. And Christians hopefully are driving down the, the road and they're listening to the great I am or how great is our God or whatever you have in there. And everybody relates to that. Trust me. I, I, was, driving, I was driving through Kentucky and I was just going, through. have you guys ever tried to travel and look for a radio station? And I came across a country song. And I, I, I said, babe, did that really? I turned it back. The whole theme of the song is, I love beer. I love beer. I love beer. I love beer. And he says it over. And I say, the guy had to be drunk when he wrote that song. I guarantee you. How deep is the lyrics of that song? But see, they do that because maybe that's the theme of their life. But what God did in in this passage, God gave them a new song because it's no longer about climbing the mountain. It's no longer about one day. It's no longer about going through Jordan and all the other songs. It's about the fact that we have been redeemed, restored, and we are kings and priests standing before God. Everything that you were and identified, every label that you had and every past that was there, God has completely wiped it away. And read verse, I think it's verse 10 if you get down in there. And he turns around and he just says, let me tell you who you are. You're not sinners. You're not who you used to be. Josh, you have that one. And he has made us unto our God, kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Kings, you know why? Because my father is a king. And priests, the priests are the ones that had direct access to God. No longer is there a separation. No longer am I under the oppression of Satan. No longer am I guilted by the past of my sin. And no longer do I have to be depressed in my life. He has put a new song in my life. I I can tell you how it's going to end. But let me bring it home to you guys with this. 
I can tell you where it's got to start. None of us that are here today without Jesus Christ will ever experience everything that I just told you right now in the word of God. The fact that the Lamb of God had overcome happened some 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. See, all the sins of the world and everything that Satan tried to do to bring the cancer, the curse, the hurt, the pain, to drag us to hell with him, he put on all of us. From the very beginning, sin passed upon every man. You were born into sin. You don't have to go out and find sin. You were born into it. Nobody ever had to tell you how to lie. You naturally know how to lie. Nobody had to tell you how to whine and complain or be angry. It's in us from birth. It is sin that is in our veins because we're born into a sin-cursed world. And the final destination is every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is how it's going to end. You either stand before God redeemed because you claim the blood of Jesus Christ now in this life because God gave you mercy to know. Or you reject, you reject, you reject, and you stand before God in your sin, and there is no mercy at that point. There's no going back, there's no covering up. The Lamb of God was slain to redeem us today. For us, I just want us to rejoice, because I can tell you that the end is coming. And God's going to make the former things pass away and all this. But I can tell you now, for those that don't know Jesus Christ, you have nothing to look forward to except damnation and hell. And just those words would sit back and say, don't be my judge. How dare you say that? I didn't come to church to have you shove religion and sin down my throat. No, I didn't have to. You were born into that. I'm only telling you this now because I'd rather you know this now than then. And the fact that Jesus Christ gave us the church and the Bible to let other people know what he has already done on the cross.